Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. This episode discusses real-life crimes involving suicide and violence against women and children. It includes descriptions of violence that may be distressing for some listeners. It includes strong and coarse language and details of domestic abuse and violent situations. Listener discretion advised. So before we jump into this week's case, I thought it would be appropriate to share an experience that I had the other day. And for the record, Ricky and I are two basic people who have an interest in true crime who are hosts of a podcast. And just to add, we're not grammar experts by any means. And you may have your opinions on how you would have handled the situation differently. But in the moment when you witness a child in danger in public, I got to tell you, it's pretty tough. Definitely a mix of emotions, easier said than done, and I totally get the reason why people sometimes decide to not get involved and turn the other cheek because it seems unsafe. I wish that I could tell you that I jumped up and shouted and grabbed the little children and the mother in a heroic superhero situation and screamed for help, but no, I didn't. I had my two-year-old with me and I was by myself and I had to protect us at the time. So I was at the mall with my two-year-old, and he needed to burn off some energy being that he was riding around in his blue car stroller thing that he absolutely loves. And as he was playing in the play area, inside the food court, there were kids running all around while the parents were mostly talking to the other adults there. I was just standing there watching my little one playing and keeping a sharp eye around his surroundings, mostly because I'm an anxious person like that, and let's be honest, you can't really trust anyone. Anyways, I noticed that there were two kids that came into play while the two adults sat at one of the cafe tables. They had two children, a little girl and a little boy, who were side by side playing together as the kids were running around. And I noticed that the little girl's right eye was very swollen and it was clearly shut from the amount of swelling. I tried to make up some story in my head, like maybe she fell, maybe she ran into something. You know, little ones tend to have bumps and bruises all over just from playing and getting hurt. But what really sent a shiver down my spine was the way that the mother looked at me. It was as if she wanted me to see her little girl. And the mother kept staring at me, almost making sure I saw her daughter. It was a very cold stare without any blinks, and she mouthed to me, Don't say anything over and over, shaking her head no as if I were to say anything, her or her children's situation could get worse. But to me at the time, it felt like a complete desperation, a calling for help. I honestly got a sudden rush of worry and fear. I really didn't know what to do, honestly. At the moment, I was almost like a deer in the headlights, and for some reason, I was targeted. I can still see this whole situation unfold in my head, and I was alone in the mall with my two-year-old. I wasn't able to help much, but I felt like in my heart I should. So I grabbed my two-year-old who was tugging at my shirt, wanting me to pick him up, and I was trying hard not to make a scene in my head or jump to any conclusions, but I had this feeling that this mother was in desperate need of help. This tall man who appeared to be the father seemed quite intimidating, and he walked into the play area, grabbed his two kids, he picked up the daughter with the swollen eye, and they walked out of the mall. 
Like I said, I didn't know what to think of this. The extremely puffed out swollen eye, the strange cold helpless stare coming from the mother that looked to me as a call for help, the don't say anything. I had my two-year-old and we followed, within distance. And as I was following, I was looking around and not one adult in the food court seemed to be bothered. I thought to myself, maybe I should just ignore this. But then I thought, there's no way I have to do something, but what do I do? I looked around as I walked out towards the entrance of the mall, and there was no security guard. I stepped outside, and this was, of course, all within distance. I called Ricky on the phone because he's my go-to, and as I was on the phone with him, I spotted them getting into their brown Chevy Malibu. The mother got into the driver's seat and drove the car right past me. I casually snapped a picture of the license plate, and they slowly drove away. That license plate picture is the only thing I have. I called the local police department and explained the situation. I also called our local domestic abuse line, and I'll probably never know the outcome with this family, but I do hope that I somehow did something positive for her and her children, and I pray that I didn't do any harm in reporting what I saw. Unfortunately, abuse inside the home is all too common, and with cases like the ones we cover, it bothers me that those children may never get the help that they need, or it will be a case that falls through the cracks because unfortunately, it does, just like the case that we're about to cover today. I actually reached out to someone I went to high school with who works at a women's center to get her input on what to do in the situation. And to note, there's a lot of helpful information on the hotline.org. So if you're curious to learn more about this topic, head on over there. So she gave me a few tips and she said, as someone who teaches bystander intervention, she always suggests to follow your gut, but also keep safety in mind. She used the example of putting your air mask on before you put your child's on. She offered the idea if other people are noticing the same issue, you could have a group intervene if someone's in trouble. But she also mentioned that every domestic abuse case is different. Some women may not want help. It's good to keep in mind that they have the right to make that choice. According to thehotline.org, it takes domestic violence survivors seven times to leave a relationship for good. And it could be dangerous because, as we've said before, the most dangerous time for someone in a violent relationship is when someone tries to leave the relationship. She also mentioned that doctor offices are trained to help identify abuse and are able to sit with a victim one-on-one and ask if they need help in creating an escape plan. And she gave the idea that anyone can get pens and sometimes post-it notes from your local DV centers, and having them available for people is a good idea too. So I want to give a shout out to my friend Caitlin, who offered some of her time to give us some helpful tips on things we can do in this type of situation. It definitely takes a strong individual to help people involved in domestic violence, and she's right there on the front line. So we're extremely thankful that she was able to spare some of her busy life working in this field to share a few tips. And I think this would be a good transition to move into this week's episode. This week, we are covering a case that involves a father with a history of violent, aggressive, and controlling tendencies that led to ending the lives of the family who lived in the quiet little neighborhood at 4923 North Albert Drive in Enoch, Utah. On Wednesday, January 3rd, 2023, a family of eight was reported shot to death in their home. It was reported on the local news as a murder-suicide 
And for a few days, there were photos of the cheerful hate family, a prominent local family with a beautiful wife and charming-looking husband and smiling children who were all a part of a greater community of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Judging from the photos alone, they appeared to have it all. But the story behind the picture-perfect smiles hit a dark secret of child abuse, control, and intimate partner violence. The victims were Tasha Haight, 40 years old, Tasha's mother, Gail Earl, 78 years old, Macy Haight, 17 years old, Briley Haight, 12 years old, Sienna Haight, and her twin brother, Emin Haight, both seven years old, and finally, Gavin Haight, the youngest at just four years old. The heart-wrenching incident garnered national attention, prompting the Utah governor, Spencer Cox, to ask the public to keep the Enoch community in their prayers. He stated, quote, Our hearts go out to all of those affected by this senseless violence. And it was senseless, but it wasn't unpredictable. It was very predictable given all that we know as a society about family annihilators. Although the tragedy was shocking, in hindsight, the signs and red flags were unfortunately all too apparent. Three years earlier, Macy Haight, the oldest child, was trying desperately to save her family from her father. In 2020, at just 14 years old at the time, Macy called the police and told them that her father had choked her to the state of unconsciousness and she was afraid that he was going to kill her. Her neck was covered in bruises. She told authorities that her father had assaulted her mother and siblings multiple times. But this close, tight-knit religious community, Michael was a respected elder, the patriarch of his family, and sold insurance to just about everyone in town. He knew the police officers who were investigating the allegations against him. They were all members of the same Mormon church, it was unthinkable to his community that Michael would do something so horrific. Even the mother, Tasha, at the time, asked that they be allowed to handle this privately as a family. And as a result, police closed out the files stating it was, quote, close to assaultive, but not over the line into criminal territory, end quote. In any other community and in any other police department, these credible claims would have been investigated and likely resulted in criminal charges. At the time, Michael was extremely angry how this may make him look. His public image was his main priority. It mattered that everyone saw him as a strong father, the head of the household, and a man of God. Perception was valued over the reality inside the hate family home. After this incident, he told his children they were terrible and disrespectful and lucky to have him. So it was no wonder that at the press conference following the killings that the city manager told reporters that the Enoch Police Department would rather not share details about the previous investigations into the family. The city manager, Rob Dotson, stated, quote, There will be questions that everybody asks themselves. What if I had done this? What if I had done that? Those aren't very good questions to ask. The question to ask is, what do we do now? End quote. Apparently, the answer to that question was to cover up the incompetence and failure to act and to protect this family. To protect those that society sees as the most vulnerable among us, the children. Those weren't the questions the city of Enoch wanted to answer. A 
According to the county attorney, their office declined to file charges in the 2020 incident because, quote, it was determined that there was insufficient evidence. On what planet is first-person victim witness testimony by a 14-year-old child considered insufficient evidence? How are bruises on a child's neck insufficient evidence? We will never have the answers to these pertinent questions. In the same press conference, the city manager stated that investigators conducted a lethality assessment and it was determined that Tasha was not in a deadly relationship. Yet all investigators know that choking and strangulation in the context of domestic violence or intimate partner abuse is always a predictor of a likelihood of a fatal outcome. Victims are 10 times more likely to be killed by their abuser if there is a history of choking or strangulation. According to Susan Madsen, the founder and director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, said, quote, The power imbalance between men and women can make it particularly difficult for abused women to obtain support in religious and conservative societies like Utah. You end up having more domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse than other communities, end quote. Despite the Enoch city manager and the Enoch police department's desire to sweep this unpleasant incident under the rug, an internal report that was released in accordance with a press request highlighted the glaring cracks and deficiencies in the handling of the hate family case. Through the lens of hindsight, it's clear this tragedy could have had a different outcome. Now, the saddest part about this tragedy is that for once, the hate children were filled with hope. After 20 years of marriage, Tasha filed for divorce on December 21st, 2022. And along with the divorce petition, Tasha's attorney also filed for a domestic relations injunction, which prohibits any of the parties from engaging in harassing, intimidation, or domestic violence, or abuse against the other party or any of the children. Michael was served with the divorce petition two days after Christmas. And that day, he called Tasha and asked her how her day was going. This surprised her, and she asked him if he had been served with the divorce petition. He said yes, he had received some papers, and they could be a divorce petition. But he hadn't opened them yet. Then he told Tasha that he expected her to leave the home immediately and leave all of the children behind as he expected to have full custody. His calm and matter-of-fact demeanor alarmed Tasha, which prompted her to flee with the children to her mother's house. The next day, he went to her mother's home and demanded she come home and give their marriage another chance. When she refused, he tried to get her to go on a drive with him to discuss their marriage. Again, fearing retaliation, she refused. Tasha shared her fears with her family. A few days later, Tasha returned to the family home and brought her mother along with her to prevent Michael from becoming violent. Michael owned an all-state insurance office in Cedar City. He had recently sold the office for a large sum of money and had agreed to stay working to help with the transfer of the business. He allegedly had a one-year non-compete clause that was ending on January 3, 2023. He was also expecting a large financial bonus, and when he asked if he would still be receiving the bonus, he was told yes, although right before the payment was due, he was fired and told that they had found irregularities which they intended to report to the licensing bureau. 
A friend of Michael's said that this would affect his ability to work as an independent agent, which was his plan. Experts believe these stressors could have contributed to the motive to destroy his family. James Park, Tasha's attorney, told KJZZ News, quote, With all the information I had, there was nothing foreseeable that could have prevented whatever was going through her husband's head to lead up to this. He described Tasha as someone who was incredibly nice, polite, and concerned for her children. He said that Tasha never disclosed that her children were in threat or physical harm. He also told the news outlet that Tasha's mom had moved in with her and began staying in her room. This began two days after Christmas, right after Michael was served with the divorce petition. While Tasha may not have shared her concerns of intimate harm with her attorney, she did share them with her friends and her family. She told at least one family member she thought Michael might kill her. Another close friend with training in domestic violence field was extremely worried for her friend. Tasha had confided that over the past three years, Michael's physical and verbal abuse had escalated to the point of danger. She was so worried the day before the murder that she sent some of her children to stay with family and friends on the night that she and Michael planned to talk. She thought that night was the night he might kill her. Her instincts were right because Michael delayed his plan until all of the family were back under his roof and control. Police found a video on his phone made the day he killed the family. He asked Tasha for one more chance to save their family, and Tasha never responded. Now, Tasha had inherited several firearms from her family, and she kept one of those in her bedside table. And she noticed the day before the murders that all of the guns were missing, and this alarmed her. She demanded he return the guns, which he refused to do. He stated he was worried that Tasha may harm him, and he had to remove the guns. Again, this worried Tasha, and she sent all of her kids to spend the night with family and friends. Now, on the night before the murders, 12-year-old Briley thanked her friend for allowing her to stay the night. Briley told that friend that she was incredibly happy that her mother was getting a divorce, and she hoped she wouldn't have to see too much of her father in the future. She told her friend that her mother had asked her father to move out, but he had refused. She also confided in her friend that she had bought some new books to read that she was very excited about. They were the kind of books that her father wouldn't allow her to read. She also told her friend that her father had taken all of the guns out of the house and had them hidden. Her mother was upset about this because she wanted a gun for her safety. Briley was under the impression that her mother had demanded that her father return the guns to her home. And a friend of Macy's told investigators that Macy had purchased a hidden phone where she had been secretly recording her father's violent outbursts to help her mother in her divorce case. But the main reason for the secret recordings was to prove that her father was abusive and to protect herself and her siblings from having to spend time with their father. The friend thought that Macy's mother may have found the phone and taken it away from Macy. And to date, that phone has never been found. The friend also told investigators that Macy was excited about the divorce and had wanted her mother to divorce her father for years. Macy described her father as abusive and violent. Macy's friends also told investigators that someone from the Department of Children and Family Services had spoken to Macy at school the week before the family's murders. The DCFS caseworker had an appointment to speak with Tasha on January 5th, the day after the bodies had been found.
In a text exchange between Briley and a friend, she told that friend that her father had stolen all of the money out of the kids' accounts because they were horrible children and didn't deserve the money. She also confessed that on her eighth birthday, her father had told her that she was a, quote, failure and a disappointment. She ended the message by saying she hated her father. She also confided that she was excited because she learned she wouldn't have to move. Her father had recently sold his Allstate insurance office for a large sum of money, and her mother was going to ask for a large portion of that money so that they could all stay in their family home. These are sadly such big adult worries for a young child to have to endure. A friend of Tasha's confided that Michael was extremely controlling and would often punish Tasha as if she were another child. Each child had a bank account with close to $20,000 per child. Michael closed all of these accounts saying the children were willful and disrespectful and didn't deserve the money. One friend with knowledge of Michael's financial condition said that he was well off and could easily have never worked another day in his life and lived comfortably off his investments. But he worried how that would look to his church community if he wasn't working hard. So he had plans to open an independent insurance agency. And on the day of the murders, that friend called Michael to see how he was doing, and he said he had his hands full that day and he would need to get back to him. Another friend of Tasha's stated that when she would come over, they would only talk in the kitchen with the water running because Tasha was concerned that Michael had listening devices placed in the home. He also would periodically take away her phone because he was concerned how she was speaking to her friends about him and how that might make him look to their church community. He would often tell Tasha she was fat and ugly, and he was embarrassed to be married to her. However, when she began losing weight, he accused her of having an affair and ordered her to stop losing weight immediately. On another occasion, he bought her a new car, but then took it to a storage facility and said he would bring it back only when she deserved to drive it. He also placed her on a strict budget of groceries and household items. Once, she spent an extra $30 replacing a rug in the kitchen, and Michael was so livid and said she should have deducted that from the weekly food budget and eaten less. She did not have permission to spend the extra money, and to punish her, he deducted the money from the following week's grocery budget. Another friend said that Tasha had begun saying nice things about Michael in their text exchanges because if she didn't, Michael would take away her phone. Later, they would laugh about the fake nice things that Tasha was forced to say about him. This was a friend that Tasha walked with daily and had confided that Michael was obsessed with keeping up appearances socially, personally, and professionally. It was Tasha's main job to keep up the appearance of a perfect family at all times. Michael was always concerned with who the children interacted with and what they might say to taint his reputation and standing within their church community. She told investigators that the reason Tasha was divorcing Michael was because his abuse had escalated towards the children in the last three years and it was starting to affect her seven-year-old. He had begun acting like his father, demanding to be served and waited on and physically acting out towards his siblings. The investigation officially began on January 4, 2022, when police responded to a request for a welfare check for Tasha Haight. It was requested by her family, who were concerned because they hadn't heard from Tasha, or her mother, 78-year-old Gail Earl. 
all attempts to contact the family went unanswered, and the doors remained locked and the windows shut. While officers were trying to determine if anyone was home, another call came in from Michael's work. They, too, were requesting a welfare check on the family because Michael had failed to show up to work and had left some concerning personal documents out on his desk. They were allegedly the type of documents someone might need to collect on various financial and life insurance-related policies. They also had discovered that several of the children enrolled in public school had unexcused absences. Given all of this information, the police decided to give the family a few more days, as there is no law against a family going on vacation or not answering their door. But again, we have to remember, these officers were friends of Michael's from his church ward. You see, they were more concerned with doing something that might embarrass their friend rather than protecting his family. When another family friend learned that the police had left the home, he decided to take matters into his own hands. He knew something wasn't right, so he entered through an open door. An open door the police had allegedly missed a few hours earlier. And it wouldn't be the only thing they would miss. Of course, the family friend found the bodies of the Haight family and called the police to come back and do their job properly this time. Once inside, police described it as bodies all over the place. There were eight bodies in total. Tasha, her mother, and her five children had been shot several times in the head and face. Michael had murdered them all and then turned the gun on himself. They were all killed in a cold-blooded and calculated manner. The one-story home stood impeccably clean, reminiscent of a dwelling once filled with warmth and love. Adoring its walls were a series of photos capturing the Haight family's journey from their earliest years to the present. In every image, their smiles remained unwavering, creating an illusion of an idyllic and picture-perfect existence. Yet behind those frames lay a disturbing truth, an elaborate charade masking the manipulation and mistreatment inflicted upon them. The photographs hinted at a chilling reality where the children were more props, exploited and used to enhance the face of a religious man consumed by control and anger. Their purpose was reduced to nothing more than accessories, carefully arranged to bolster his social status as a principal man of God. When the family no longer served his narrative, they were callously disregarded, cast aside like discarded roles in a performance he no longer wished to partake in. Well, to be fair, a role in which he had been fired. Tasha no longer wanted to be his wife and his children no longer wanted him as their father. That was a position he never deserved. Now, those photographs were being used by the crime scene personnel to help them identify each of the victims of this tragic family massacre. Calling all inner detectives, we would love to invite you to travel back in time to the glamorous 1920s with a fun game called June's Journey. It's a mystery-solving game that will keep you entertained for hours on end. With its stunning visuals and engaging puzzles, June's Journey is a game that is perfect for your busy lifestyle because, like me, I can always come back to it whenever I get some downtime. My favorite time to play June's Journey is a few minutes before bed. It helps me wind down for the night and escape from my responsibilities for a little bit. And I love the mixture of mystery, danger, and romance. 
I definitely don't want to give away any of the story, but the mystery in the game is captivating. Currently, I'm on chapter three, and I can't wait to see what happens next. In June's journey, you play as June Parker, a young woman who is determined to solve the mystery of her aunt's death. As you progress through the game, you will travel to exotic locations, meet interesting characters, and uncover hidden secrets. If you are looking for a challenging and fun puzzle game, then June's Journey is the perfect game for you. Download June's Journey today and start solving the mystery. Hi, this is Daniel Roof, the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown. The postseason and Bet Online is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information, up to the minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Everything you need to stay up at speed on each league championship series and through the World Series. Don't forget, Bet Online is where you have the latest game odds, present totals for the NFL and college football, plus real time updates on statistics, news, and odds. Serious up betting on football. So head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. The first three people to be located and identified were in the master bedroom. They had been killed while they were sleeping. Like a coward, Michael went into the room he once shared with his wife and found her in bed with her 78-year-old mother, Gail Earl. Sleeping between them was four-year-old Gavin. He was laying flat on his stomach. He had his head turned towards his mother, with his right arm underneath his small body. He had been shot in the back of the head. Tasha was laying next to him on her back. She had been shot at point-blank range. More specifically, she had been shot in the eye with the gun pressed against her face. On the other side of Gavin was Gail, who had been sleeping on her left side when she was shot in bed while she was sleeping. She had been shot in the back of the head. The next room was Sienna's room. Her lifeless body was positioned slightly reclined as if the abrupt sound of gunshots had startled her awake. She was still partially covered by her protective blanket, meant to keep her safe and warm from the nighttime monsters in a child's imagination. Except Sienna's monster was real. She had been shot in the face. The next body to be found was Ammon. He too was in his room and woken by the loud gunfire. The placement of his body on the floor tells a story of a futile attempt to escape the violence erupting within his home. He had been shot in the back of his head. He was wearing red and black pajamas covered in bears. His white socks were covered in blood, and there were small bloody footprints coming from the stairs of his bunk bed to where he finally fell onto the ground. From there, he did a body crawl to his final resting place across the floor where his father shot him one last fatal time. Moving through the house, the next two bodies were also found in their rooms. They belonged to 17-year-old Macy and 12-year-old Briley. They too were both shot in the eye. In Michael's mind, perhaps he was taking an eye for an eye. From the note he left, he made it clear that he saw himself as the only real victim. The eighth and final body was found laying on a sleeping bag in the basement. That gunshot appeared to be self-inflicted by Michael Hay. After destroying his family and refusing to allow them to move on without him, he didn't dare face the consequences of his actions and killed himself. He didn't want to be judged or suffer the consequences of his actions here on Earth. 
He left a suicide note that reflected his petty hatred where he took zero responsibility for destroying his family. Instead, he blamed them for his actions. It read, quote, I've worked my whole life for the ideal of an eternal family. I've been an honorable good man who's tried his best to provide for his family. I've seen the texts and the emails with all of the backbiting and gossip about me and my family. I cannot believe that God has allowed the person who should be closest to me in the world to find fault, gossip, disparage me at every turn. I have never seen someone who is so intent on finding faults in others. I've tried helping, but it generally backfired, and I seem to always get blamed. I would rather rot in hell than put up with another day of this manipulation and control over me. I've been complained about every step of the way that I work too much, put my church calling before my wife, and on and on and on. She's been awful to me and my family for years, and I've generally been patient trying to work through her issues with my family, our kids, neighbors, ward members, and others who don't make her the center of attention. This is nonsense and I can't handle it for one more day. We will not be a burden on society. I kept asking for help and you wouldn't listen. As expected, he took zero responsibilities for his actions. Behind closed doors, he was a master of deception, a man who reveled in the shadows of manipulation and cruelty. To his family, he was a tormentor, a tyrant who thrived on control and inflicted emotional and physical pain. Yet, when the public eye turned towards them, he meticulously crafted an image of a strong, devoted father, a paragon of virtue and righteousness. He skillfully wove a narrative of moral superiority, using his outward appearance and charisma to project an oral of godliness. The perception of being a man of honor and divine favor held more value to him than the harsh reality he imposed upon his loved ones. He valued the facade of a perfect life over the genuine well-being and happiness of his family, shamelessly prioritizing his own ego and maintaining an illusion of righteousness. His true intentions were made clear in Google searches that he performed hours before he killed his family. He Googled, Would a neighbor hear a gunshot in the garage? I heard gunshots close to my house. What do I do? How loud is a 40 millimeter pistol? If you heard a single gunshot in your neighborhood at night, should you call the police? Can you hear gunshots from inside a house? It's clear his primary concern was someone showing up and stopping him from his deadly intentions. Acts of violence, including spousal murder or family annihilation, are complex and often involve multiple factors such as individual psychology, mental health issues, and interpersonal conflicts, and societal influences. It's important to take a comprehensive understanding that encompasses psychological, sociological, and cultural aspects when trying to understand these acts of evil. Hi, this is Daniel Roof, the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown. The postseason and Bet Online is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information, up to the minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series and through the World Series. Don't forget, Bet Online is where you have the latest game odds, present totals for the NFL and college football, plus real time updates on statistics, news, and odds. Serious up betting on football. So head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at Bet Online, where the game starts. 
One of the most outrageous aspects of this case, outside of these senseless murders, was the obituary that was released by Michael's family. To be fair, he didn't deserve an obituary, but it would bring comfort to his family. It's understandable if they chose to release a brief, tasteful statement regarding his passing, light on the details. Instead, someone chose to write his obituary as if he were running for public office. It's outrageous. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you because it's eye-rolling, but basically it explains all of his interests, his successes, how he was a religious man, and all of the wonderful things he did for his family. And I will highlight the most insulting sentence, quote, Michael enjoyed making memories with his family, which could be partially true, but his children's memories were of a violent, abusive, and sadistic father that they were hoping and praying they would no longer have to see or spend any time with. By exalting him after he murdered them was the ultimate addition of insult to injury. The obituary was so inappropriate, the two papers in which it appeared both had it pulled from online publication due to public outrage. But it wasn't pulled before members of Michael's family and church added praise for his character and memory. None of their comments mentioned his final acts of evil or any memories involving his wife and children. One read, he was always kind and good to us and always willing to lend a helping hand. The Lord loves Michael very much. May your family be blessed at this time. May you find peace and comfort and know he was loved by many. Our family had three generations that loved and trusted him. May all the hearts be comforted in this time of sorrow and grief. If you just read that without knowing what actually happened to this family, you would think he just passed away unexpectedly. And there were countless messages, like this one, wishing Michael the time of his life filled with love and peace in the afterlife. It is deeply appalling and disgusting to leave comments like this that seek to romanticize and extol the virtues of someone who committed the heinous acts of annihilating their own family. To paint a picture of someone who was kind, good, and divine over the cold-blooded massacre of innocent lives five children who were shot in the face, a mother who feared that she would be killed and tried to protect her children. The focus should be on the grieving family members, the ones that were left to grapple with the unimaginable loss and trauma. It's nauseating to sweep what he did under the rug. Following the outcry regarding his obituary, the Earl family released a statement. The Earl family, just to remind you, is Tasha's side of the family. It asked the public not to make this case about politics or gun reform, but instead to make it about the victims and the untreated mental health crisis that they feel was ultimately responsible for this tragedy. The Earl family believes that if Michael hadn't removed all of the guns from the household, Tasha could have protected herself and her children from Michael's malevolent intent. It's along the lines of the thought that it only takes a good person with a gun to stop a bad person with a gun. Again, that's all hope and speculation. The truth is that Michael was not a good person. He was not a good husband, he was not a good father, and he did something very in line with his poor character. He did something his wife and children and close family and friends all feared he was very much capable of committing. His community can choose to forgive, They can choose to forget and they can choose to envision him in an afterlife surrounded by his family and his creator. 
but others might choose to think of him someplace darker and less comfortable. It is essential to recognize the gravity of violent actions and hold perpetrators accountable and provide support for survivors as they navigate the difficult journey of healing. By engaging in open dialogue, fostering understanding, and advocating for change, we can work towards a society that prioritizes the safety and well-being of all of its members, especially the most vulnerable among them, the innocent children. If you or someone you know is suffering from domestic violence, there are resources available. It's imperative to obtain guidance on how to safely make a plan to escape your situation with a safety net in place. There is help, even if you feel like there is no one who can help you. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached 24-7 at 800-799-7233 or by text at 88788. 